Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Sunday, everybody. He is risen. Oh, man, you guys are awake and you are ready to go. I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, for those of you, guitar down, everyone's okay, I think. Hopefully the guitars are okay. (laughs) All right, so we are going to go ahead and ask you to open your scriptures to the Gospel of Luke chapter 24. That is where we are going to be today. As you do that, I just want to say welcome. My name is Jeremy. I have the privilege of serving as a senior pastor here at First, and we are so excited to be able to gather today, whether it be here in person or online. If you're a guest with us today, there's a guest welcome card in the pew in front of you or online above where you're watching. There's a way that you can fill out an online contact card. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know two things. Number one, what's your name? Uh, Number two, how can we pray for you and how can we serve you? Those things are kind of tied together. We would love to um, serve you in any way and to walk with you through whatever is going on in your life, both joy and sorrow. Um, So we have much to celebrate though today. Luke 24 is where we are going to be this Resurrection Sunday. And you've heard part of the scripture reading already this morning. I will also say this, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you're here, maybe you're here for the first time, maybe you're online joining us for the first time, you don't have a copy of the scripture, there's two ways that I want to just encourage you to get yourself a copy of the scripture. The first one is this, if you are a smartphone device kind of person, uh, the Version Bible app is an amazing way to engage God's word. It's completely free, it is produced not by us or anything like that, but it's a great app on all of the uh, places where you can get Bibles that you can read. You know, you can get all sorts of different translations. It's a great way to engage God's Word. The second is this. Um, If you don't have a a copy of Scripture, we would love to give you one. And so on your way out the door this morning, or you can even get up right now if you don't have a copy of the text, um, there are some in the very back by the windows on the tables. We'd love to give you one if you don't have a copy of God's Word. That is probably the best, one of the best gifts we could actually ever give you. So um, we'd love to be able to do that. Um, So as we get ready to read the rest of the story, the narrative of the disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, I want you to think for just a moment. Have you ever been on a walk that was incredibly memorable? Incredibly memorable. Um, Several years ago, when my daughter was just a wee little one, she was like six or eight weeks old, we took this trip out to Montana with my family, my parents and, and siblings, we met them all out there, and we went on this upper alpine mountain hike. Now, as we're going on this hike, it was a beautiful day. There was beautiful sky. Uh, There's beautiful clouds in the sky. It was sunny. And we're going up to kind of the, the higher regions in altitude, and we're going up to these alpine lakes. So we had a great hike on the way up. And on the way back, it was a great hike until something happened, right? Until something happened. So we're coming down this mountain, literally mountain, And all of a sudden, the clouds started to change color. You know what I mean, right? The wind picked up. We felt a raindrop. And we're still like a mile away from the car going down a mountain. 
and then the lightning came out. <laughs> and we went, middle of the woods, no car nearby, not the place we want to be at this moment. So we're hiking with my siblings, and um, my, my brother, who's like six inches taller than me and a half is he's a lot skinnier than me, um, he, he grabs one of the kids, and he puts their, their, um, their carry thing on him, because my wife had been carrying um, one of the other kids, and so my wife sends us, this is, this is Jeremy's recollection of the event, but this is the, uh, this is kind of the, the intensity, is like, get my babies down this mountain and safe, right? It was a very memorable hike. My brother John and I, we start high-tailing it down this thing as safely as we could, but I remember the hillside we are on when John swapped over and he had my daughter on him instead of uh, her being on my wife because we had to make time, and we had to get down very, very quickly. And so we were hauling, and we made it pretty much before the lightning and the thunder just kind of let loose. Have you ever been on a hike or a walk that has that was incredibly memorable. The disciples, the disciples of Jesus in Luke 24 are going to take an incredibly memorable hike today. As we read the text together, we're going to look at a story of two disciples of Jesus who experienced something amazing, and it began on a road, and it finished at a table. And then it went back to the road, (laughs) uh, because they had to share what they had experienced. Before we read the text together, I just want to show you a couple of pictures because I find it helpful to see what would they have seen. And I want to talk about this just briefly. Um, here is the biblical city of Moza, okay? Th- this, this dates from the first century period. This is one of the contenders for the biblical city of Emmaus. In the, in the time of Jesus, this city was called Emmaus. There's some scholarship out there that they're trying to figure out, all right, what is the right city of Emmaus? You know, is it this one, or is it this one, and they're distance-wise, they're trying to figure all that out. Here is what it looks like in comparison to Jerusalem. So you see Jerusalem in your upper right-hand corner of your screen, and you see the modern road that leads out of Jerusalem, and then you see this Roman road to Emmaus on your right side of the screen. This is the ancient road that Jesus and his disciples likely would have traveled. And they're traveling, and we'll talk about this in just a minute, but they're traveling probably, if they're going to Moza, they're, they're going 3.5 miles. So it's a seven-mile round-trip endeavor. Here is another uh, photo just from a different vantage point. This one was taken um, a long time ago. Not a long time ago. This was taken almost a century ago. Um, so you kind of get it without all the buildup that has happened in the recent years. So you have here, you have the modern highway, you also have the Roman road to Maze. But here's what it looks like to walk on this path, all right? This is the Roman road um, that goes out from Jerusalem to Moza. And this is what it looks like within the last couple years. Um, 20 years ago or so, it was a lot less um, eroded than what it is today. And so to have you have an understanding of what would a biblical road or Roman road looked like at the time of Jesus, here's a photo from a Roman road that has been very well preserved in Turkey. So you can kind of see the amazing feat of the Romans in establishing these roads. So imagine with me, you are walking on a road something like this. You're walking there. It's sometime after daybreak. We don't know exactly what time it is. We know when these disciples reach Emmaus um, and they begin to eat that it's almost dark. So I would assume that's probably later on in the day that they have begun this hike. 
put your walking on this and let us read together the scripture. Would you stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 24? Luke 24. I'm going to begin in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together, they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, What is this dispute you are having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking, and they looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened here, there in these days? What things? Jesus asked him. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, he was powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides this, it's the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, How unwise and slow are you to believe in your hearts all the prophets have spoken? Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, Stay with us because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread and he blessed, and he broke it and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. So they said to each other, were not our hearts ablaze within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour, they got up and they returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together who said, the Lord has certainly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for how you work in our lives. Sometimes, God, without us even having eyes to see. And God, I thank you for the story that is included in Scripture of how two people met the Lord Jesus on what began as a confusing and troubling day in their life. And yet, God, how you, in your goodness and in your grace, revealed yourself to them, showing them you had risen. We pray that your spirit would help us to see this text with fresh eyes today for your honor and for your glory. We want to live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So, they're walking on a road. This is the modern road. 
So this is the actual road. They're walking down this path, and all of a sudden, um, they're discussing, not all of a sudden, they're discussing, because a lot of things had happened in these two people's lives. Now, we're introduced to these two people, um, we're, we're introduced to one of them. His name is Cleopas, all right? Uh, he's not one of the apostles that we know of. He's, well, he's not one of the apostles, but he's, he was the disciple of Jesus. We have no idea who the other person is. There's a whole bunch of scholarship about that, too. Is it his wife? Is it his son? Is it another one of the disciples? Frankly, we don't know, and I, I don't think we need to know for today. Um, so Cleopas and this other person, they're walking down the road, and all of a sudden, as they're discussing, and the text says that they're arguing among themselves, and they're thinking about all the things that had taken place, Jesus meets them. Now, consider what they may have been talking about here. They were talking about things like um, a couple days prior, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. He enters on a donkey, and all the people, or at least this particular crowd of people, hail him as, here's the king. And they have this expectation that the king, the Messiah Jesus, is going to come in, and he's going to do something. And they thought he might actually become um, political, in a sense. They, they, they thought he might establish an actual earthly kingdom, because they're looking for deliverance. They're looking for redemption because they're under Roman oppression. But as Jesus comes in, he goes through a whole week of teaching and all these kind of things that are recorded for us in the Gospels. They come to Friday night, and they or Thursday night, Friday night, and, and they celebrate a Passover Seder, Jesus and his disciples, probably on Thursday night. So they gather around this annual feast of Jerusalem, where everybody goes up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. It's the first pilgrim feast of the year. And they gather, and they're all talking about redemption. And at that table, and I don't know whether Cleopas knew this, I, I have to think that with all the things that had happened, they'd probably heard something from the other disciples. Because at that time, Jesus gathers them for the Passover Seder. Now, a Seder takes quite a while to go through. There's um, different scripture readings that take place. There's um, the singing of various psalms that take place. There is the breaking of bread. There is, um, in, in modern Jerusalem, or modern um, Jewish practice, there's four cups of wine that, that correspond to promises that God gives in Exodus chapter 6. And Passover is meant to be in a, a time in which you remember how God redeemed your people Israel from slavery in Egypt. That, that, that's what they're thinking. That's what they're called to remember. If you want more on Passover, go to last week's teaching where we dive into that in much more detail. So, but in this Passover Seder, one of the things that happens is Jesus institutes a new covenant. He, he says on the third cup of the fruit of the vine, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And he institutes these two symbols, the body broken and the blood poured out. And he says, this is what I'm going to do for you. And so they're like, what's going on here? Because not too long after that, Jesus and his disciples, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's arrested, where he's taken and he's tried before the high priest. He's tried before the Roman officials. Not only is he arrested, he is beaten, he is convicted by those courts, he's sentenced to death, he dies, and on 
Friday afternoon before the Sabbath comes, he's laid into a tomb. And so they went from, hey, we're coming into um, Jerusalem to celebrate Passover to what on earth just happened? Our rabbi, our teacher is now in the grave. So you can imagine, they, they, they go through Saturday going, what on earth is happening? They come to Sunday morning. There's women, a part of their discipleship group, who go out and they go to the tomb because they're going to anoint the body with spices. Um, and as they do that, they get there and they're met by angels and they're like, why are you looking for someone who is living where, uh, where dead people live, right? Like, like where their bodies go into the tomb. Why are you looking for him here? Because he is risen. And so the women, they run back and they tell the disciples what happened, and they're going, what on earth is going on? In fact, there's a lot of people, the text says, who don't believe them. Verse 11 of chapter 24 says this, but these words seem like nonsense to them, all right? These are the apostles who are gathered around, and they didn't believe the women. Now, the word nonsense here is an interesting word. Uh, It's used in everyday Greek to refer to the delirious stories told by the very sick as they suffer in great pain. Or it's used um, to describe tales that are told by those who fail to perceive reality. So they're going, these women are not really getting it. He died. What on earth is going on? Now you have Peter who runs to the tomb and that whole story is a whole other story for another time. But you can imagine these two disciples are walking down this Roman road going, what on earth just happened? And they're arguing and they're discussing. And here is when Jesus comes near to them. I love how it says it there. And the way it says in my text, I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. He says, and while they were discussing and arguing, verse 15, Jesus himself came near. He, he came near. He didn't stay far off. He came near to walk along with them. Now, verse 16 says, but they were prevented from recognizing him. So, person comes up to walk with him. Not terribly uncommon, because as you're walking down these roads, it was fairly common to have other people walk with you. Uh, there is safety in numbers as you're walking down different roads. Sometimes it's just nice to have company, too. But they were prevented from seeing who this was. And um, the, the way that that is phrased is what they call in Greek a divine passive. In other words, God prevented them from seeing who Jesus was. He, he, he clouded their eyes for just a brief amount of time. And, you know, I was thinking about that this week. I'm going, why? Like, why would Jesus not want to have them know who he was? I, I mean, they've just gone through this incredibly difficult weekend. What was supposed to begin as a celebration of redemption ended up to be just a, an incredible downturn of their hearts and their souls because a friend and their Messiah, their Lord, their rabbi had been crucified. And I, I don't know that we can be precisely certain. Per, perhaps it's because, perhaps Jesus hides his identity from them because he desires to meet them in their questions. He, he desires to take them wherever they're at, and not just like shock them with, hey, by the way, I'm alive, but he wants to walk them through some teaching, because that's what he does. As they're on the road, he begins to talk about the scriptures, and he begins to unfold and connect certain things that maybe they'd never seen before. 
perhaps in delaying his identity before them, these close followers would have their faith and their trust built in a different way than if they had just seen him right away. Now, I, I don't want to blame these two guys for doubting, because 2,000 years later, there are many people who struggle to believe these events. And that's with Jesus appearing to numerous people, and in records of that in Scripture and in other writings. But Jesus himself, he comes near and he begins to speak to them. And they have a conversation. And as they begin the conversation, Jesus says, what's this dispute you're having, in verse 17? With each other as you've been walking. And they stopped walking and they looked discouraged. You know, so, so Jesus asked them a question. Hey, what are you talking about? And they don't just, you know, keep walking. Hey, let's, l- let me tell you what we're talking about. They actually stop. They stop. They stop. You can imagine they probably look at him and they go, you really don't know? <laughs> like, you don't know what just happened? People knew Jesus. Jesus' works and his teaching were renowned through much of the land. And they stop and they say, wait, were you not in Jerusalem a couple days ago when all this stuff went down? And so they begin to unfold for him what happened, not knowing that, of course, he knows what happens. He says, what things, he asked them in verse 19. And so they said to him, the things concerning Jesus the Nazarene. Notice how they describe him, Jesus the Nazarene. Um, Nazareth is a small town, not known for a ton. In fact, one of the disciples, as he's being called, his name's Nathaniel, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, I don't know if he was a a rival towns person, you know, he was from a different town, and they're like, we don't like the Nazareth, uh, or the Nazarenes, but but they note this, just incredible detail. The things concerning Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, he was powerful in action, and speech before God and all the people. You know, you can imagine, if they were to begin talking about all these things that Jesus had done, hey, Jesus did this, and Jesus did this, and Jesus did this, and Jesus did this, they believed he was a prophet. They believed he was a prophet, like unto Moses. They, they, they believed that he was the Messiah who had come for them. He was powerful in the action and speech. But in verse 20, they say, and how our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Pastor Tom did a really nice job with this as we celebrated Good Friday. There's a number of different groups in Jerusalem at this time. It's not all, um, like, all all the Jewish people were not united about one thing. You had a group over here that had a certain belief and interest that flow from it. You have another group over here that had belief and interest. When Jesus is arrested and he is tried and there's people shouting, crucify him, crucify him, that's not happening like in the main part of the day. That's not happening with all the Jewish people around him. That's happening with a select group of people who were were there in order to achieve a certain end. The disciples here, Luke's gospel notes it, our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Verse 21 says, but we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. They they had in their minds a certain context when it came to redemption. Um, One pastor puts it this way. He says, redemption for Cleopas, like all Jews of Jesus' day, meant deliverance from the pagan ruler Rome. When they invoke redemption language, 
know that they're just coming from this Passover Seder and this Passover feast, which is all about redemption. If you were to describe Passover in one word, it would be redemption. So they've been talking about redemption, and they remember how God had redeemed his people from Egypt, how, how he had taken down Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt. And as he does that, he brings his people out with a strong arm. And so they have a certain picture here about what redemption meant. This is Exodus language. There is a Passover context that is happening right then and there. They think redemption is going to come from being released from servitude to Rome. What's the point of their story? Well, one of the points is this. They had a certain idea of what redemption should be. But that's not the same as what Jesus' intention was to come. And that's what Jesus begins to unfold for them. And in, in doing this, Jesus doesn't just say, hey, by the way, I'm alive, just trust me. He begins to walk them through their story. He begins to walk them through the story of the scripture. Now, I don't know how far back he started. Did he go all the way back to Genesis? Did he talk about how sin entered the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve? I don't know. Uh, did he walk through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their struggle in life and in trusting God? I don't know. Did he walk them through um, Moses and the deliverance from Egypt and make connections there? I don't know. It says that he explained Moses and the prophets to them. In fact, he says it this way, how unwise and slow you are to believe in your hearts all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then begin with, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. In other words, he began to rightly tell them their story. Because they had certain things, and those things maybe were not completely in error, but they had certain expectations, and he, he goes, no, 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 I need to tell you the story, and I need to connect the dots for you. I don't know if you, um, raise your hand if you're here, if you like doing connect the dot type things. Anybody? All right, you've got, we've got a couple of people who like this. So when I was a kid, connect the dots were really simple. Like you just went over here, and there's like 20 on a page. You get like a thousand dots on some of these pages, and it just makes my mind spin. Uh, because I, I looked at one last night online, and I'm like, I don't even know what this is until you do all the work. And I was like, I'm not doing all the work for that. But, but connect the dots is, is where you have this outline of something. And when everything is put together rightly, and you go from the right number to the next right number to the next right number, and you don't skip one, and you draw a straight line, and all these things, what begins to emerge is the actual image that you are intended to see. And that's the way I like to think about how Jesus began to connect the dots between Moses and all the prophets. He began, I think he probably began in Genesis, and he began to tell them, no, this had to happen. Because in their mind, why would the Messiah die? And he's going, why wouldn't he die? Because it was necessary. And in fact, two times in Luke's gospel, in chapter 24, once is the beginning of verse 7. Some translations capture this well. Mine particularly doesn't in this translation. Uh, but once in verse 7, and once in verse 26, it says, it, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to die? And the, and the point is, is yes, it was. And Jesus begins to connect the actual redemption that is taking place. It's not just about freedom from a foreign power. 
he walks them through their story to teach them this. Their problem was not Egypt. All right? Their problem didn't have to do with Pharaoh and the Exodus. Their problem was sin. It wasn't Egypt. It wasn't, it wasn't the Exodus that was the issue. It was sin. There, there's a greater story that is going on here that Jesus connects for them, beginning with Moses, back in the beginning with the Torah, and all the prophets. He begins to say, this is why the Messiah has come. He has come to give his life as a ransom for many. I would have loved to have been on that road to hear how Jesus himself connected all these scriptures. Because these are people who knew the text. The, the, the common Jewish person, by the time they reach 13, they have an understanding of the whole of Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They know lots of the Psalms because they don't have copies of this for everyone. They have it up here. You know, the scripture in Deuteronomy, it says um, to, to talk about the words of God while you're walking, while you're sitting, while you're lying. Why? Because you don't have a Bible you can just go to and you can just read it. It was something that you ingrained within your kids. It was something that you spoke and you memorized. And so Jesus can make all these allusions and quotations from scripture and they're going, yeah, yeah, wow, I maybe never saw it that way. You, you, you know, the way that they say it as they're sitting around the table in just a little while here is they say, we're not our hearts ablaze when he was talking about the scriptures with us. Because there's something, the work of God is going on in their life as they're having eyes to see how the promises of God meet God's redemptive plan. These promises were not just promised, they actually happened. And that's what they're beginning to see. And redemption is, is such an incredibly important thing. Re redemption is not just being um, released from something. To, to be redeemed in the biblical sense is to have a payment of a ransom in order to secure the freedom of someone. And so when Jesus begins talking about redemption, using you know, this, this lamb motif from Exodus, how a lamb had to be killed— and the blood applied to the doorpost, showing trust in God, Jesus likens himself to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And not just Jesus, but other people. John, the Baptist, the immerser. He, he um, if you were to translate that word, John, who, who was his cousin? Jesus, he sees Jesus and he says, and God, John's gospel records this, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world just incredible things that Jesus is connecting here. Jesus' death was not just to free people who were enslaved to Rome. It was a payment in full that resulted in securing lasting freedom for them to serve God. So, verses 28 and 29 is when, you know, there's just transition elements here. They came near the village where they were going. He gave the impression that he was going farther, but they urged him Stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. And so Jesus went in to stay with them. And I love how Jesus makes the big reveal here. It was as he reclined, verse 30, at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. 
I love it that Jesus uses food or the, or the occasion of a meal to reveal important things about himself. I love it because I love food. But, you know, meals are important times. There, there, there are times in which people are gathered around. And notice what Jesus does here. Jesus, he takes the bread. Takes the bread. The bread that they would have had, because this is still what is known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they would have had flatbread. This is, this is matzah. Uh, matzah is the Hebrew word for unleavened bread. Um, this is what you use to celebrate Passover. There, there's no leaven in this. Th- this is rabbinically certified kosher for Passover matzah right here. Um, if you look at it, if you're really up close, you could see that there's, um, there's dark bruisings on this. You can also see that there's a whole bunch of punctures in this bread. Jesus takes the bread. Now, it may not have looked exactly like this. It may have been round, but, but it's unleavened bread. They're still in this feast. He takes it, and he breaks it before he breaks it. He takes it, and he blesses, okay? The idea behind this is he's not blessing the bread. He's not making the bread holy. He's reciting with the group that he is with the customary Jewish prayer. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. You don't bless the bread, you bless God. So he takes it, he, he blesses God. He breaks it. And as he breaks it, he begins to hand it out. He begins to hand it out. He begins to hand it out. And as he does that, Scripture says in verse 31, then their eyes were opened. All right? The the same divine work that shielded their eyes now enabled them to see. And they recognized him but he disappeared from their sight. <laughs> that had to be maddening, right? Like, oh no, wait, where is he? <laughs> As Jesus breaks the bread, I think there's two, two important things here when Jesus takes the bread and he says the blessing. Their eyes were open, which is a divine work, but the second is that there's something about at the occasion of the bread that it helps alert them to the identity of Jesus. Bread was a very important thing in Jewish tradition. It, it, it still is around the world. Bread is one of the staples of life. And so Jesus takes the bread. Now, I don't know that either of these disciples were there just a few days earlier when Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. I don't know that they were. I think that they probably heard about it though. Well, that's not the only time in which bread played an important part in the story of God. That was the most recent. Um, another time in which bread played an important part in the story of God was at an earlier Passover that John's Gospel records for us. It's around the time of the Passover, and um, there's uh, 5,000 plus people who are gathered around Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, why don't you feed them? And his disciples go, that would take a lot of bread. <laughs> we don't have that kind of money. We don't have that resource. So they find a couple of loaves. And Jesus begins to break the bread. And as he begins to break the bread, there is more than enough to go around to everyone there. And by the way, there's leftovers. All right? In the ancient period, leftovers, it's a great thing because bread was hard work. You had to grow the grain. You had to mill the grain. You had to harvest the grain. You had to mill the grain. You had to make the bread. It was laborious work. 
So their minds, I have to think, and th this is Jeremy's opinion right here, I have to think they're going back to all these different ways. They see the scars, they see the hands, they see the bread, they're reminded, wait, his body broken for us, wait. Because in the other Passover mentioned in John chapter six, later on in that chapter, Jesus is talking about bread. And he says, he says this, he says, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. The people of Israel, after they came out of Egypt, they wandered for years and years in the wilderness. And as they wandered in this very inhospitable place, one of the things God did is he met their need with bread. They called it manna, which means, what is it? Because they didn't know what it is, but it made kind of like bread. Um, and so, Jesus is essentially tying together, you think you need bread for life? Let me show you the real bread that will never leave you hungry. And he says, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never be hungry. And so, so Jesus' teaching on the road to Emmaus was not just a mere explanation. It, it ignited something in them. And it came to its fullness as they gather around bread, as it, it is broken. And they see, wow, our eyes are now opened in a very different way than they were just a few hours ago. Now, what do you do when you experience this um, incredibly lively uh, and, and intriguing discussion about the scriptures on your walk? And you gather around a table, and all of a sudden, you find out that you're a rabbi, your teacher, whom you'd followed and followed and followed. He's actually alive. What do you do? What do you do? Well, the text records for us so they say, uh, it says, that very hour, that very hour, they didn't wait. They'd just gotten somewhere. I don't know if, <laughs> almost invariably, I walk out of the house, and I have to, two minutes later, walk back in because I forgot something. And it's the most frustrating thing. Imagine walking three and a half miles or so, which biblical Moses, three and a half miles away. So if we understand that to be the place, that's a seven-mile round trip which kind of works well with Luke's gospel. So they've walked, though, a period of time. They get there. They have this incredible experience. What do they do? They don't just say, wow, that's just amazing. They actually turn around, and they walk back to Jerusalem. They, they, they head all the way back. And I can imagine that they probably didn't walk slowly. <laughs> I can imagine they walked as fast as they possibly could, because it's now dark. They, they, they're headed back, and this is towards the end of the day, but that didn't matter, because that very hour they got up and they returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven, and those with them gathered together, who said, the Lord has certainly been raised, and he has appeared to Simon. And so they head back, they find the eleven apostles there, and they go, what? You've had an experience too? And then they begin to share their experience, 35. Then they began to describe what happened to them on the road and how he, he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. When they're confronted with this amazing news, they could not keep it to themselves. They had to take it, and they had to share it. That's the natural overflow of this kind of news. So, where do we go from here, right? How do we begin to take this encounter and make some application to our life? I want to suggest a couple things. Um, 
when Jesus appeared to Cleopas and this other person, this other disciple, whether it's his wife, whether it's his son, whether it's another disciple, he walked with them in their despair, in their hopelessness, and in their sorrow. He didn't seek to immediately try to fix everything, although he had. He didn't just immediately reveal himself to them. What he did is he met them where they were, and he pointed them back to God's word about why it had to happen the way it did, even though they may not fully have understood that. He demonstrated that his suffering was necessary, and in doing so, he gave them eyes to see, eyes of faith, and deeper trust, not just in that he is right before them, but deeper trust in God's word. He connected what actually happened to the promises God had given his people since long ago. And in doing so, I think he built up their faith. There's something about this that's important for us. That's this. Sometimes, many times, we find ourselves in difficult moments. Or we find friends or family in difficult moments. How do we engage them meaningfully? I think there's something to walking with someone in their sorrow, in their grief, in their discouragement, and in their confusion. But the way you walk with someone in those things is you begin to share with them the word of God, the words that bring life. Don't dismiss what they're experiencing, but connect it to God's story. That's one way that I think we can walk out this text. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're walking through a really, really challenging moment and season of your life. I want to encourage you, let's have a conversation. Let's open the scriptures. And that doesn't mean that there's an answer for everything. Sometimes, sometimes it's just the process of walking and learning to trust more and more, especially in the unknown, that we need for our faith. I love it. Jesus walks with them. And my friends, Jesus wants to walk with you today. Whatever you're facing, he wants you to know that you are dearly loved by God. So much so that Jesus came to die so that you could find life in his name through his death and his resurrection. So that's one. Walk with people. Involve the word of God in those conversations. Even when, and maybe when, especially when suffering is a reality, there is one who has suffered for us. And we can find hope in his provision at those times. And the second of this has to do with bread. Um, Jesus, I just love it. At bread, he, at bread is when he reveals himself. And he could have done it on the road. He could have done it at the table during the blessing. But it's at the bread where Jesus reveals himself. The search for bread is a search for life. And there's a lot of us today who try to find our search for life in a whole bunch of different things. We try to find it in our jobs. We try to find it in our relationships. We try to find it in our accolades or our credentials behind our name. We try to find it in the next rung up in something. We, we try to find it in our hobbies. Friends, there is no other place that we can find our identity than in the broken body and the blood poured out life of Jesus. That's where we find who we are. Galatians chapter 2 says it this way. 
It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. We're going to be looking at Galatians as a whole book over the next several weeks. I invite you to come back and join us for that. One of the things that Galatians teaches is that our identity is in Christ. It's always in Christ. It's always in what Christ has done on our behalf and the work of him adopting us as his sons and daughters, reconciling us to the Father. Many of us here, we search for bread, we search for life, and we find it only in one place. That's what Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Anyone who comes to me, you'll never go hungry. Are you hungry in your life today? Maybe not physically right now. Maybe you are. But are you hungry spiritually? Are, are you hungry, hungry relationally? Are you hungry emotionally? Are there things that you desire? Maybe you desire reconciliation in a relationship. Can I encourage you? Go to Jesus. Be reconciled to him and then be obedient to his call. Do, do, do you want provision in your life? Let, let me tell you, no amount of cars, boats, planes, or anything like that is ever going to give you what you need. You can, you can have the search for more and more and more and more and more, and you will always be left empty at the end. There's only one who satisfies. That's Jesus. The book of Romans, the letter to the Roman church, uh, Paul puts it this way. He says this, with regard to salvation. If you believe, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you're not a follower of Jesus, whether you're joining us here in person, whether you're joining us on the live stream, I want to invite you, receive the work of God in your life today. Believe in the truth that, that, that has been so incredible in my life. Years and years and years ago, I walked in an old way of thinking. I don't walk perfectly now, by the way. Um, but, I, but I walked and my life was driven by anger, it was driven by anxiety, it was driven by all these things. And one day I said, God, I need a, I need a savior. God, I can't save myself. God, God, there's a work here that I am completely incapable because of my sin to do. And at that moment I trusted Jesus. I said, Jesus, I, I believe that you died and you rose again. And I, and I believe that your life can bring my life, life, and meaning. And I invite you, I invite you to trust Jesus today. And if you want to have a spiritual conversation or any conversation, I, I would love to speak with you after we're done. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much that you meet us here. I thank you, God, so much that you walk with us in the challenging moments of our life, moments filled with discouragement, moments filled with despair, moments filled with questions. And yet, God, you walk with us. And I pray that your spirit would reveal himself to us today, that we would see with the eyes of faith, knowing what you have done and trusting in you and you alone. God, as we're about to sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood in righteousness. These words are a, a confession, but they're also a declaration. 
God, thank you that I don't have to rely upon my own works to be made right before you because they would leave me empty every single time. Thank you, God, that I don't have to come to you perfect. I just have to come ready for you to do a work in me that I cannot do myself. Thank you, God, that in this moment, in this moment, so many years ago, upon the cross at Calvary, you knew we would be standing here, and you gave your life for me. God, we bless you. We give you honor and praise because you alone are worthy. You alone are worthy to receive all glory and power and honor. God, in the quietness of this moment, I pray for my friends here, whatever they walk through, whether it's a challenge or struggle, whether it is a wrestle with, can I really trust Jesus? Can I really trust the God of the scriptures? God, I pray that you would do a work in their hearts that would result in faith saying, yes, I can. Thank you, God, for loving us and for meeting us here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.